Good evening, everyone. Thank you for uh, joining us for tonight's Fee Brown Bag. My name is Tom Green, and I'll be your host as we discuss serverless computing, what it is, and why it matters. Uh, our host tonight will be Keith Townsend. We're in for a, uh, a good show, and we like to keep it interactive, especially when Keith is hosting. So we'd like you to get in on the conversation. If you want to join us on Twitter, it's at vbrownbag. Uh, our other shows, vbrownbag Latin America and vbrownbag Europe, you can see their Twitter handles there. I'll be monitoring the Twitter feed and the hashtag vbrownbag. So come at us with all your questions and your funny pictures, and uh, we'll make sure to, to get them out there. So without any further ado, I'll hand it over to Keith and let Keith introduce himself and let me know when he's ready for the screen. All right, so if you can go ahead and give me the screen, I'll go ahead and share my screen. Hopefully everyone is uh, nice and hydrated. If you're not hydrated, I suggest you going, if you uh, crack open the, the beverage of your choice tonight i've uh, chosen a long island iced tea i'm in the first sip of it so i'm pretty pretty good depending on how the night goes that that may change we will see depends on the questions that you guys have for me we're yeah, gonna have, a... have to either lean on your questions or lean lean on my long island iced tea we'll see how it goes it's gonna be pretty interesting into the the show then tonight stay tuned <laughs> there you go no i think i think the show should be pretty interesting because the crowd is going to give you a bunch of questions time and this is going to go really really well otherwise i have to go into my warner i got some stuff from i got a blog post from warner virgo up uh some stuff on uh steps to code lambda and uh web page we'll give those links out anyway but i wanted to uh at least have it as backup material in case uh no one has questions because as you guys know if you haven't done a v brown bag with me before i like interaction time has told you this before please raise your hands ask questions the whole point of you guys giving you up your wednesday night which i appreciate is for you to learn something even if i don't know the answer to the question hopefully I can point you in the right direction and you get something out of this. All right, so this is a variation. Tom, can you see my screen? Sure can, looks great. All right, so this is a variation of a talk I've given paid and unpaid and just in general throughout the community and through events such as uh, Interop and the like. Uh, introduction high level to serverless infra infrastructure. So what you should get out of this is basically a basic definition, or at least my definition of what serverless is, what it isn't, some examples of serverless uh, use cases, some products, uh, next steps on how to uh, learn more about serverless. So this is a basic introduction to serverless, at least how I see the term. So, uh, quick intro, because I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this. Uh, I've been IT for about 20 years. The past five or six years has been in more of a biz business type of role where I've been either a chief art architect for a large government contract at Lockheed Martin had, or I was a consultant with PwC, or I'm in my current role as a enterprise architect 
uh, for a large biopharmaceutical in Chicago. You can see my content, the older geekiest stuff, like how do I virtualize virtualization at virtualizegeek.com. I haven't really, I don't think I've posted to that in about a year, but some of the legacy stuff is still popular. And then more of my recent stuff you can find on Tech Republic, the CTOadvisor.com and techtarget.com. So with that, let's get started right away and talk a little bit about the obvious things. Their servers and them, their data centers, whether it's AWS, Azure, IBM, and I'll make the argument for something like Cloud Foundry, their servers in serverless. This isn't a magical thing that we haven't discovered a new way to compute. This isn't HP's, you know, even HP's memory-based computing has servers and CPUs. We haven't, we haven't turned computing on its head and found a way to uh, compute without servers. So what is serverless all about? It's about developers, de developers, developers. It is a different way to look at IT infrastructure, not just IT infrastructure, but a different way to look at how you serve up computing. If you think about cloud computing all the time, people will tell us that cloud computing isn't about the technology, it's about the new service model or how you deliver IT services. If, if cloud is about how you deliver IT serverless, I mean services, then serverless is a as a subset of kind of that whole idea, uh, that whole concept or idea. So another term that you'll see for serverless is event-driven computing, and I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about how I view this view. If the concept is to make infrastructure easier to consume for developers, then why put it in the box of saying, you know what, it's event-driven. So what does event-driven mean? It means that it is a, you're able to kick off a process based off of the event. So an event can be anything from you writing to a storage, a, uh, a, cloud watch type of activity so something happening uh with a node let's say a node goes down and you, you want some correlated uh event to run it, it's something that can't be necessarily scheduled and if you think about it an event could be you know like a time of day in theory so you know five o'clock and five o'clock if a time hits five o'clock please run a process but this is not something that we're going to, you know, how is that different than regular compute that runs in our data center? If you think about a uh, server or an application, we'll start an application up, let that application run as a process, as a continually running process inside of a OS. So, uh, you know, if any of you have ever uh, programmed in GW Basic, there's this, uh, uh, basically this command that says if in if press any basically if you press any key something happens so the interrupt is the PC is constantly searching the BIOS for an interrupt so once I hit a hit return on my keyboard the program continues on that's not event-driven computing 
event-driven computing kicks off a process for a predetermined amount of time for a short period based on a different event. So most of our applications in the data center are not event-driven. They might have event-driven subroutines. So after, back, after backup finishes running, uh, delete all of the uh, flags or change the flags, change all the archive bit, 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 bit flags to archived. That's a process within a chain but we don't ever go through and like shut down the the application. I mean, we don't go in and shut down a backup daemon. The backup daemon is just always running, waiting to be executed. So I'm going to pause there and make sure that you guys, because that's a key concept when it comes to event-driven computing, and that's kind of how people view serverless. They, if you hear the term event-driven computing, people are talking about serverless. It, it, any questions on the difference between event-driven compute and just regular compute that we see in our data centers or even in our cloud-based applications that are not event or Lambda or serverless-based? Um, yeah, actually, it's, it's a hard concept. It almost reminds me of wrapping my head around virtualization whenever I was first learning that. Uh, just how do you abstract away the event and the processing from an actual server itself. So, I so think, we'll get, go ahead. go ahead. I think you did a good job of kind of introducing that concept. We've got a few comments, uh, no real questions, except for why Graham is asking, why is it serverless? There's always something in the back end, which I think you've kind of hit on that. So we're, yeah. we're good. So. That's, so event-driven computing is one way to look at serverless. The other way to look at it is that at the end of the day, developers don't care about servers. Servers are a construct that we came up with as part of the client-server revolution in computing. The, even as we move to virtualization and eventually cloud, if you think about it, it kind of doesn't make sense. Why, if we create a abstraction of compute, memory, storage, networking, why do we need this construct of a virtual machine? All we want are a bunch of processes that run against our data center. This is why, you know, something like containers becomes more popular. The Developers don't, re don't really worry about the VM, the operating system. They worry about the code and the code that runs against the infrastructure resources. Virtualization at some point, and this is my prediction, at some point virtualization should abstract away even the concept of a VM. There's a pool of data center resources spread across physical hosts, and those physical hosts and, that, and the hypervisor provides to the developer an API to run code against. Does that make sense to you guys as virtualization? I know V. Brownberg has traditionally been virtualization focused, but as virtualization folks, can you guys see a concept where the VM goes away? The... And I'll wait for feedback from Tom, but the the VM is kind of a legacy construct that we've created 
to, you know, uh, this, these set of processes talk to another machine on another set of processes. Developers really don't think like that. They think about the business problem, the code necessarily to execute the business problem. And as infrastructure professionals, we've given them uh, the construct of a VM or a virtual machine or OS or a set of OSs to be able to run that code against. The idea of serverless is that, you know what, I have code, that code uses resources, and I'm going to run that code against my data center, not necessarily against my, a bunch of virtual machines, or, but against a, data, a set of data center resources. Serverless in a, in a nutshell. So my definition of serverless, and this is keeps, because most people tie it to event-driven computing. So if you go into a uh, interview and someone asks you to define serverless, kind of like the correct popular answer is, you know, this whole event-driven computing piece. But if you talk about, you know, the geeky Keith architect looking into the future, it's something like Cloud Foundry, the ability to run code, I mean, to write code and push it against a pass. So you think about the original vision for Microsoft's uh, Azure, you know, Microsoft Azure, when it first came out, there was no, they didn't offer it a VM. They were, they were like, here's a platform as a service, write code against that platform as a service, AKA sounds a lot like serverless. That's my, that's my argument. So the rest of the presentation will, while I'll talk about event-driven products because most of the market manifests this way in this event-driven uh, event process technology. Uh, my broad definition is the ability to write code against the infrastructure without regard to the server con construct. So Keith, um, in response to your question of if we're getting it, Graham spoke up and said yes and no, and he likened it to a credit card. Mm -hmm. He said his credit card is an abstraction, but there's still money to back it up on in the back end, basically. Yeah, so Graham, that's a really great point. So at the end of the day, going, there's going to be individual OSs to manage. So when I deploy a certain... Uh, a serverless, a serverless platform, let's say that vSphere ultimately provides the serverless platform. Well, I'm, I'm going to have servers to, you know, as hosts, as vSphere hosts. You know, I, I can't just go out and say, hey, give me a bunch of storage, give me a bunch of CPUs, and give me a bunch of disks. Those, those things have to be put into something physically. So I'll still have vSphere hosts in my vision or hypervisors but those hypervisors will be invisible to the developer. So at the folks on this, on this call, we'll still manage the hypervisor le level, but what we expose to the developer is that credit card interface, is that uh, abstraction of compute, storage, networking, and without, the, without any reference to a VM. So what we're taking away is the concept of the VM. We still have the physical holes that back up the, those resources. Makes a little bit more sense. So for the folks on the, the phone, we'll still manage hypervisor holes. We just won't, we, the, the developer just won't see any of that. That's why I have this developer, developers, developers uh, slide up. It's, Serverless is all about changing 
for infrastructure folks, it doesn't change our view of the infrastructure other than erasing the concept of a VM. For the uh, developer, it erases the concept of the VM and it's a new way to consume infrastructure without thinking about servers, hence serverless. So uh, Richard has uh, spoke up and has asked a good question. Would you say HPE Synergy offering is going against or is going that way? So I can think of HPE Synergy as something that would back in a serverless infrastructure, but uh, to say that Synergy in itself is serverless is not the case because you're composing, you know, this goes to HPE's composable infrastructure pers uh, perspective, that you can compose, you know, Synergy isn't going to be exposed to the developer. Synergy is exposed to us, the infrastructure professionals. So we're going to continue to think of hypervisor host, uh, container host, etc., and we'll use Synergy to compose those hosts, to, whether it's two CPUs, four CPUs, a bunch of storage, a bunch of memory, a bunch of networking, et cetera. So then it makes it more flexible for us to build serverless infrastructures, but not necessarily a, con a construct that's ex exposed directly to developers. Make sense? Good question, though. And this is the back and forth I was hoping for this whole concept of serverless, you know, as infrastructure folks, the idea that there's not servers, our day-to-day, -day, when we walk into the data center, we, we see servers. They might be hypervisor hosts, but they're servers. They might run containers. They might run platform as a service. They might run VMs. They might even run bare metal OSs, but they're servers. So breaking that breaking that association, disassociating the concept of of servers, which is what we physically manage day to day, to a construct of what we present out to our end users to consume, our developer, our internal developers or end users to consume as just that those bare data center resources, storage, compute, memory that they can run code up against is a it's a it's 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 a bending of the mind a little bit. Yeah, I'm a salty VMware admin. I'm just trying to wrap my head around containers and now serverless, how that's different than a container from a VM. So, and we'll actually get into that a little bit. So I'll save the whole, the relationship to serverless to containers in a little bit. So any questions about the that, that developer focus and, and breaking through, okay, on the back end, there are servers on the front end, we we make the servers invisible to the developer. And we'll see kind of, uh, if we have time, we'll at the end, we'll look at kind of code examples of what the developers would write, what they push it to, and then um, uh, what their experience is. Hopefully that'll help bring it home. All right, so moving on to the decision point. So from a infrastructure perspective, we have to decide if we're going to host the this this platform on premises in the public cloud or have a hybrid combination where we have we consume some public cloud resources and we leverage some on premises resources and 
where we kind of break that relationship of servers and infrastructure. Because there's not many applications that are really serverless end to end, not at least not very complex applications. You look at some of the Amazon material, they'll say, hey, you can build, uh, you know, enterprise apps completely serverless. Eh, yeah, that's true. You talk to a lot of the serverless experts, they say, yeah, don't do that. There are some processes that lend themselves to building as a serverless process, but you still, you know, the if you do too much, you know, everything breaks at scale. If you do too much serverless, it becomes hard to manage from a code base. So while depending on the flow of the conversation, I may talk about how we integrate cloud-based serverless solutions onto our on-prem legacy data center. That's the uh, some of the discussion that we'll hopefully get into. I'm going to pause for questions for you, Tom, and let me know if uh, there's any questions. If not, I'm going to move on. Uh, no, I just wanted to uh, bring up this idea of security and make sure that you're going to talk about security in a serverless world. Yeah, I have a use case uh, for security in the serverless world. And this is the security piece. Can, I, I, my first serverless meetup, I think I spent I hauled at least 15, 20 minutes of that meetup time asking security questions because I, I, I had a hard time wrapping my head around how security worked in the legacy sense in, uh, in serverless. So talk, take, I think one of the best ways to do this is take you through a serverless workflow. Hopefully, at this time, most of us are familiar with these AWS uh, symbols and, and kind of abstractions. So overall, we have our AWS VPC or data center at the high level. We are using services including CloudFront, S3, uh, some Lambda functions, which is the actual serverless functions. Uh, S3 uh, bucket again, some CloudFront streaming services, and on either on the input side of it, in the output side of it, we have uh, external devices external to AWS. So this is the the deep dive. Let's 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 have some fun. So this is a video encoding app. This is kind of the poster child and the, one of the simplest to describe applications to show you the power of serverless. So we have some laptop encoders that take video and post it to a S3 bucket. So at this point, hopefully if you guys haven't gone back and looked at, at the S3 stuff that V or the AWS stuff that V Brown Bank has did last month and a month before you learned all about this amazing concept of S3. So S3 and S3 objects are really cool in the sense that I can consume storage without using, without presenting it as block storage uh, via VM. So there's head ends on the AWS service that allows me to write files directly to S3. I can open up a browser, 
surf to a S3 bucket and upload data directly to S3 without starting the EC2 instance. So S3, AWS's oldest service, is a online storage bucket. We're used to using this concept with, you know, Dropbox, uh, Office 365 with Microsoft Live, uh, and now S3. We take files, put it into a flat directory structure with some metadata around it called S3 Magical. We can even create, if we put a, um, a start.html or an index.html file on an S3 bucket, we can actually host a static web page on S3. Everyone has that concept down, right? No questions about that portion of it. Yeah, I think that's pretty clear. Uh, if anybody needs a refresher, just speak up and we'll help you. All right. So no magic in that. The magic starts at this point. So just like every other system in AWS, whenever you make an API call to S3 to write a storage object, an event is created. Basically, a object has been written to your S3 budget bucket. It's an event. Hey, Lambda is the event-driven computing, which means that AWS can trigger a Lambda code process off of uh, off of that event. So S3 alerts, and I'm oversimplifying this, but S3 alerts Lambda that a file has been written to a bucket. Lam based on that, the Lambda code says, oh, I'm supposed to do something. So let's look at these cascading Lambda functions. The first one is a to create a, a copy of the, of the video file that was written. Then the, it calls a process to encode that file in 480p, then transcode it in 360p, then transcode the audio, then uh, create a thumbnail, then create QoS analytics. All of that is basically creates files that are written to another S3 bucket. Once those files are generated and written to an S3 bucket, those files can be streamed via the AWS CloudFront service from a mobile device or a video on demand mobile client based on, you know, so this guy will say, oh, based on the, I'm going to contact the CloudFront streaming image. The CloudFront streaming image is going to say, oh, you're a mobile client, so you need the 360 feet, three version of the file. So I'm going to grab that from the S3 bucket or you're a VOD streaming mobile client, you, you do 480p, so I'm gonna to stream to you the 480p uh, bucket. So I've created a video streaming service without servers using AWS. All right, I expect questions after that. That's a whole application that can be built Without, you know, of course, we're oversimplifying this. There's no security on this. There's no, uh, there's no process to go back and, you, you know, count the number of, of, of uh, perform any additional analytics on it uh, or create a database that does tracking, et cetera, et cetera. 
this is just a process to get the file from the video capture device into S3, encode, transcode that into two different formats, including audio, post that back, that transcoded video into an S3 bucket, and then allow that, uh, those static files to be consumed via AWS CloudFront streaming service. So AWS allows you to create a whole application without actually using a server, a serverless application. So uh, I did get a question in of, is this sort of the process that AWS Elastic Encoder would go through uh, if you're using their function as opposed to writing your own Lambda? Product. That's a good question. I would imagine that they would have built their, I would, they would have built their Elastic Encoder using uh, Lambda as the back end. AWS dog foods their own stuff, so they probably built the Elastic encode, Encoder, and then used that thought process to deliver Lambda as a service. And that's, that's Elastic a, Transcoder, not Encoder. I was just sorry, Elastic Transcoder. And I, encoding and transcoding is. I thought somebody would catch that. That encoding is different from transcoding, but you get the the gist. All right, so let's peel the onion back and take a look at some of the specifics around what happened. So the first question is, okay, I write code. When I write code in the infrastructure, I push that code to a virtual machine. I'm surprised no one asks, well, where, where does Lambda code live? Lambda code lives within what's ultimately an S3 bucket. We may not, what may not be exposed to us is the S3 bucket itself, but the Lambda code that exists on the S3 bucket that AWS consumes and presents to us in a, uh, in a code format. You guys are guys are slipping. I, I, you know, I can't expect it to get the question. Well, if I if I write, you know, if if I even if I have a, con, a, a container, the container has to live somewhere. Where's that? Where's that container? So there you go. Next question that I'm going to ask for you guys. Well, how do I turn the knobs when it comes to performance? A developer, if a developer has a process, I can negotiate with him. Well, how many vCPUs do you need? How much memory? How much storage, et cetera? How are Lambda, how are Lambda, and this is general, and this is generic across Lambda in the other compute services as well. This is pretty much the case consistently across the board. How do I, how do I turn the performance knob for Lambda? Well, that performance knob is based on memory. You can dictate how much memory a, uh, a Lambda process will take. And based on that is basically how many vCPUs and backend resources AWS will give you to run that process. Because of course, not every process is created equal, right? A transcoding, Transcoding a five gig file uh, is very different than transcoding a 50 gig file. If I'm transferring the, the compute that I use to transcode a 50 gig file is gonna be very different than the compute that I use to transcode a 50 gig file. So the way that I size it is based on the amount of memory uh, 
that I dictate to the uh, to the function. Yeah, never even Next question, about the, well, not necessarily question. Was that you had some time? Yeah, as I said, I never really thought about the performance profile of us. I assumed serverless meant it fired off and you got unlimited resources. It's not the case. Yeah, that, uh, and this is why resources is an important concept. Functions run for no more, in AWS, functions run for no more than five minutes. So if we were to give the function uh, a half of meg, a half a gig of, of memory, and we're transcoding a 50 gig file, then that function may take a half an hour or 30 minutes, whatever. We have to size it so that it runs within five minutes. So some, if it doesn't complete within five minutes, the function just ends. And in this process, so HQ copy, I don't remember the explanation. HQ copy may simultaneously kick off each one of these uh, processes. It may also kick it off as a batch process, meaning HQ copy calls 480p copy, 480p copy calls 360p transcode, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if it's a batch process and it, the 480p doesn't finish and it just, it just ends, then this, six feet, this 360p will never run. This will never run. Uh, the, uh, I'm, and I'm pointing to it like you guys can see it. The, I'm used to giving this as a presentation in person, but the uh, 360p would never run, this guy would never run, thumbnail would never run, and QoS would never run if there was if the uh, if the first process didn't finish and this was a batch process. So something important to keep in mind that in AWS functions have to run uh, in five minutes. So you, five minutes. so you can go in and define and add more memory to a Lambda function? Correct. Awesome. So this is in this, uh, you hinted to this a little bit, Tom. Lambda, Lambda scales, impressively scales, and is based on the, and, uh, the pricing is based on the number of events. So we all know from our AWS training last month and the month before that AWS offers a free level layer of services. For Lambda, that free layer of service is you can get a million Lambda events or functions for a month. That's a lot of events. And the way that a function is kicked off and its relationship to a container, so as it was explained to me, there's a one-to-one -one mapping of functions to containers. So every time you kick off a, every time a function happens, AWS loads the code into a container. So there may be a little bit of a delay. So the first time the function is called, there might be a few, I'm gonna guess a few second delay as that code is uploaded and the container is started. But once that container is started, AWS, that container exists in AWS container infrastructure or function exists in AWS container infrastructure. And then it's just the speed of, of, of starting a new container. 
So AWS can scale this as big as you need it. So, uh, Tom, I hope this answers your question, the relationship between containers and functions. A, there's a one-to-one -one mapping of functions to containers. That's hidden from the developer. That's hidden from the developer. The developer doesn't know. All the developer knows is that it runs. On the AWS infrastructure side, the, the infrastructure operations team sees functions running in a container. Make sense to everyone? I think my head hurts, Keith. That we might have to watch it again, Tom. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's cool stuff. It's cool. It's just a lot to take in. All right, so I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep giving it to you because it, there's more, believe it or not. So here's where we get in trouble. Lambda is like everything else. You give a lot of it, it breaks at scale. Lambda isn't gonna break the down systems break. So let's say that we're writing, let's go back to our application and instead, and let's replace these S3 buckets with MySQL databases. So we're not gonna, in this picture where we're serving up the storage using S3, we're not gonna break S3, right? You know, we, we can throw as much as we can at S3 and there's not going to be an application we can support that's going to break S3. But if we replace this playback bucket with a MySQL database, I'm going to throw this question out to the crowd to get some interaction. How do you think we can break the MySQL? What if a thousand of these guys hit up at one time i'm uh trolling twitter and and everything looking to see if we've got uh endless query eric bachman says go. endless query so if we throw if we threw a thousand of these up at one time and this process ran and we went to go write this to a mysql database and that MySQL database isn't sized correctly, this is gonna fall on its knees. So this is where integrating serverless technology that has virtually endless capacity into our existing infrastructure, here's the breaking points. When we start to rely on stuff, even if it's AWS infrastructure, we can have an AWS EC2 instance that's running MySQL. But if that's size too small and we get an influx of too many functions, before we could put an artificial dampener on this whole process to avoid overloading this overhand, we can just say, oh, we can just queue up these, we can just queue up these jobs at this layer and we can feed these instantly. Well, AWS will say, will allow you to say, oh, if you have a thousand things queued up, there is no queue, we'll, we'll run all 1,000 things at one time. That, that breaks, that, that's a nightmare. Actually, it probably wakes me up at night. So you can scale Lambda, you can turn the knobs on the total number of Lambda uh, 
functions that you want to be able to run at one time. You can say at any given time, only allow 10 of these functions to run, a thousand of these functions so that you don't overload the down system, the downstream system. Okay, any questions on the code? No, it seems uh, clear here. All right, guys, I hope you're having as much fun as me. I, I really do like these things. Uh, so wait, wake up. we do have one from Eric Bachman again. Um, he says, doesn't that also keep your monthly fee down? Uh, ah, great question. I didn't hit on that. So obviously it does. Functions are a lot cheaper than EC2 compute. So if you're not running a static, if we're not treating this, you know, if we don't have, let's say that this was this, all of this cascading Lambda functions was an EC2 instance that we spun up and just had waiting idle, waiting to receive uh, input. Well, we're paying that, let's say that it's a big enough node that we're paying uh, $1,100 a month for that node. If you have less than a million of those requests a, uh, a month, you just went from paying $1,100 a month for that EC2 instance to just paying for the storage, for the storage and the playback and the and the um and the network payback for playback for using the cloud front streaming service. So you've just eliminated eleven hundred dollars out of your AWS bill. So yes, Lambda has the potential to reduce your AWS bill. You're uh you're in for it now, Keith. We're just getting code questions about code flowing in. Uh, Aaron Strong says, if I own the code and AWS owns the compute, can AWS see or monitor my code? You know what? I've had that question and I don't know the answer to it. I'm sorry. The, but that is a really good question. Because the, and I'm going to answer that question with yes, because the file is a Node.js or a uh, Python script. Or you can uh, create a uh, C. You can um, you can compile C sharp and run C sharp. So it's just a Node.js script, and I don't. Uh, from a security perspective, I don't know if if AWS has a commitment or not to not read that. But I think in theory they could. And we've got a two-parter. Because from if it's not encrypted, there's nothing to physically stop them from. You you can't run encrypted code, so. I don't think there's anything to stop them from other than a contractual agreement. And I don't know if there's a contractual agreement that they won't read your code. Awesome. Thanks, Keith. Good question. We have a two-parter from Graham. He says, can Lambda auto-scale the compute resources? And do you suspect that they'll keep it free forever? Or do you think they'll tombstone the free Lambda? Event? So I think they'll keep the million free for a while because it's a loss leader they're trying to get more people to consume it and you might ask yourself well why does lambda why would aws give so much lambda away for free because it's you know it's like a drug dealer you give a little bit at a time and then you're stuck this if once you build if, you know we look at kind of what lambda works off of lambda works off of only other aws events so lambda is event driven compute and all the events have to be AWS events. So you, this is not very portable. You can't take a Lambda-based 
application and easily move it to Microsoft. Uh, we'll get into it in a quick question. Microsoft Azure Functions because those you'll say, oh, once it's written to S3 storage, hold on, no, 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 that's Microsoft storage. Or once this CloudWatch event happens, oh, no, it's not CloudWatch, it's Microsoft's equivalent to CloudWatch. You have to refactor your application. So AWS most definitely wants you to use Lambda because if you use Lambda, you're going to consume more AWS services. The more AWS services you consume, the more locked in you'll be to their platform. So you, you heard it here first. AWS Lambda is the devil. My obligatory water boy reference. All right, any more questions on, on the code? This looks clear to me. All right, so next uh, area is competing solutions. So we have Google Cloud Functions, Microsoft Azure Functions, which I've mentioned before. Then for on-premises solutions, we have IBM Bluemix, which they leverage what's a open source product called OpenWhisk. Uh, when I say that it's open source, it's open source in the same uh, sense that OpenStack is open source. Most of us won't go out and roll our own OpenStack. So I looked at this when I first started looking at uh, serverless about a, a little bit over a year ago. I said, oh, I'm going to try and, and install OpenWhisk in my lab. Uh, yeah, no, that's not happening. If you get OpenWhisk installed in your lab, uh, tip, of the, tip of the cap to you. Then the other, one, the other bot solution is WebTask. And I think, uh, no, I think WebTask is another cloud-based solution. And these are kind of what you can, Blue Mix is hybrid. You can get it in IBM's cloud or you can, uh, that, so Blue Mix is the, the managed provided portion of it that competes with uh, Google Cloud Functions, Azure Functions and Lambda. So I'm gonna uh, flow through the hybrid con concerns unless you guys have uh, specific questions about, well, what does that mean to if I'm going to run Lambda functions in AWS and then those Lambda functions interact with data in my data center is basically the, the high level concerns. So from a high level, you have the same concerns we had in AWS, which is IO capacity. We're talking about drinking from potentially this huge pipe of Lambda functions. Lambda can, can throw more compute and data at us then more than likely our internal I.O. can hold. So we need to make sure we design our Lambda functions and our infrastructure accordingly so that if we're interacting, if we have a Lambda function, let's say interacting with our, uh, our on-premises hosted ERP, that our ERP backend and that transit network is able to support the targeted uh, traffic coming from Lambda. The big question around security that Tom had. So this is something that I spent a lot of time drilling AWS on. And I'm still not 100% clear on uh, the VPC controls, but you have VPC level controls 
But remember, Lambda is a service. It's not a similar to S3. Lambda is a service. It's not compute that's exposed to us. So when we think about controlling, especially in the hybrid world, saying that a process that runs on server ABC cannot interact with our credit card data. We are used to creating those types of rules. So if you've dealt with hybrid IT at all, you've generally said, okay, yeah, ephemeral smimeral. I know that you can take an ECT ho EC2 host, pin it up, give it an IP address, or you can give it a repeatable IP address or a range of IP addresses, and I can block those IPs. Well, Lambda is not a server. So I can't say, hey, block, block this IP address or allow this IP address to access this data set. We have to put the, we have to focus the controls inside of the code. So this is where API level and um, application uh, security becomes much more important. We can't, we can no longer default to the network as our primary method of security. So that is, I'm still, I personally still struggle with this concept. It, it's a lot of app, for that reason, like uh, one of my uh, day jobs customers looked at hosting the application using Lambda. Lambda would have met all its needs from a application capability perspective. But once we ask the HIPAA question around, is it HIPAA compliant? AWS's response was no. So that's kind of telling how new that is. This is something, as technologists, we have a hard time understanding it. Try explaining this to your SOX auditor. That's probably not going to, or your HIPAA auditor. That's, pretty not, that's probably not going to happen. Yeah, there's, there's got to be some credential passing there somewhere, too. You can't, like you said, you can't encrypt uh, any of it. So do you know how it hand, handles that sort of? Uh, yeah, so we can do, we can still do public private keys. So we can do uh, certificate based, we can do certificate based uh, uh, controls. So we can do public private keys within the uh, application, within the Lambda, but again, it's not HIPAA compliant. So if it's not HIPAA compliant, there's probably, you're not gonna probably do a lot of secure transactions with uh, at least processing secure data with, uh, with Lambda. I haven't looked, I haven't gone back to revisit what new security controls have been added over the past few months, but there are limitations of what you can do from a security perspective and what you can, well, you'll be able to pass an audit or security uh, officer's concerns. All right. So we talked a little bit about this, the on-premises options. We got uh, OpenWhisk, again, which is that open source perspective. The package software product, uh, you guys might have seen them that they've sponsored vmugs. Iron.io is kind of this on-premises. All the, uh, the, the ability to do serverless 
within your own infrastructure in a package supported software product, iron.io kind of leads the way. Anybody else have seen anybody else in the wild outside of OpenWhisk and iron.io for on-prem server? And oh yeah, the, I don't, I didn't put it here. Uh, hybrid cloud options outside of on-premises. We have OpenWhisk, Azure Stack, or Azure Stack functions on the release of Azure Stack is uh, going to support functions out the box. AWS Snowball Edge, so AWS Snowball Edge, uh, what was announced at uh, reInvent 2016, out the gate that appliance, and this is where I say AWS is sneaking into the hybrid cloud, into the data center, Snowball Edge will run functions, in Lambda functions. So you can kind of picture what that means. If you can ingest an incredible amount of data, terabytes of data on a scale-out Snowball Edge unit and then add uh, Lambda functions to it, you can provide some pretty light but robust, uh, some simple but robust code at the edge. So AWS gave that turbine example where you have a four-node Snowball Edge deployment. It collects data from the edge. You have uh, that data is uh, collected in a snow in S3 format. There's an alert that's generated. That alert uh, kicks off some Lambda functions. That Lambda function runs some analytics against that data that's collected. And then depending on the, the, the function, let's say that there's a valve that's out of, out of uh, range, that Lambda function can either alert a, uh, a knock or kick off a larger set of compute that happens outside of Snowball Edge. That's the beginning of AWS sneaking into our data centers. And then, and of course, my example of, of non-compute-based driven, just regular, just regular Cloud Foundry, where we have a pass sitting inside of our data center that's compatible with external uh, cloud service providers. And I can just do a CF up, which if you think about Docker up, CF up is, this, is, the, is the developer's equivalent to Docker up. So I can say CF up and push code to, uh, to my Cloud Foundry platform. So any questions on the various solutions that's out there on the market? The only one that came to mind for me was iron.io. Uh -huh. Does that run bare metal or does it run in a virtual machine? So I'm going to hurt your head and say that it doesn't matter. Okay. Well, I was just, it, I was kind yeah. of hoping that it was called iron.io and required a virtual machine. Cause I think that it doesn't, yeah, that would be ironic, but <laughs> no, it doesn't require a, uh, a, a virtual machine. Okay, cool. But it can run in a virtual machine. So in theory, I can run Iron I.O. in AWS, in theory. So why would you want to? Uh, I'm sure there's reasons. All right. Let's, let me see where I'm at on uh, slides. I have a closeout slide, but we're not going to close out. How much time do we have, Tom? 
We're here until you're done, Keith. Just, just keep it coming. It's going great. I, uh, I've got a headache, but I'm learning a whole lot here. All right, so I'm going to bring over my web browser. And this is Lambda Code. So this, uh, AWS has a process. Uh, if you just Google just Lambda Code, this is the first example of a project you can do with AWS Lambda, which is create a hello world Lambda function. It walks you through this. So this is just like there's AMIs for commonly used VMs and um, appliances. The AWS provides Lambda blueprints. So you can create, you can pull this Lambda blueprint for Hello World. So when you go to your, this is a complete set of instructions on how to go to your AWS account. And again, you guys can all do this because you've signed up for free, excuse me, for free AWS accounts. And you can run this Hello World function uh, by without even writing code by just pulling this, uh, what they call, they call it a blueprint versus a EMI straight from the Lambda repository, similar to a GitHub go to the next step and then so the first code the first uh job is to create the the lambda code itself you can uh you can actually test the uh, code to see the output uh we can then invoke the code so step 2.2 allows you to actually take the code and tie it to a lambda uh, or aws uh event so it can be an s3 thing it can be a cloud watch uh function it can be whatever you want to tie it against so this would be pretty cool to see how extensive aws has integrated lambda into their uh service offering and then it goes into so this was a the original one is based off of python hello code so if you're a java programmer and you prefer java 2.3 allows you to shows you how to do the same steps but in Java. So I think they put it right here. So it can be either a Python job, uh, file or Node.js file, and you can go through uh, download the the the. Uh, I don't know if there's a. I don't know if there's a. A blueprint, a Java blueprint. I think there's only a Python blueprint and so you'd have to copy and paste this this code and then of course i mentioned earlier you can do this in c sharp as well but you'd have to up it, it doesn't have a c sharp compiler so you have to upload the the uh compile uh code binaries so i thought i'd show that 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 quick you know just practical let's go into aws see whether see where the stuff is at now, if your head isn't hurting enough, if you're not, Tom, you say, Keith, I want more. Well, you go to Werner Vogel's website, All Things Distributed, and he has serverless reference architectures for AWS. He, I think he gives three or four reference architectures, one for a mobile backend serverless reference architecture. So they talk about this a lot. If you're a mobile developer, 
chances are you don't know a whole lot about infrastructure. So if you're building a Flappy Bird type of application, there's a big need for back-end infrastructure. But you're a front-end developer. This reference architecture can be used to create a, a serverless back-end for Flappy Birds or any other mobile application. There's a, an example for a real-time uh, uh, file processing serverless reference architecture. This is closer to that uh, example that we just gave you for the uh, transcoders. There's a web application serverless um, reference application. So remember again, a combination of, we can use S3 as our web server in Lambda and Dy DynamoDB and all the uh, like, I can, I can create a uh, serverless application without ever starting up an EC2 instance. Even when we run, uh, what is that, hosted, if, I don't know any, if any of you host your uh, WordPress in AWS, but I think that's an actual EC2 instance, if I, don't, if I remember correctly. It's not, AWS doesn't offer a WordPress service. They offer hosted WordPress that gives you EC2 instances that uh, potentially auto-scale, so it's uh, an, uh, an, an entire EC2 uh, environment in which you can host your WordPress. This is taking a web application and hosting it natively in AWS without servers. IoT use case, you can't get away without a buzzword of IoT. Will live stream processing, this is I think that, that exactly that use case that we gave at the beginning. So we'll close out. But before we close out, any questions? We have quite a few here. So oh, you good. I've been queuing them up apparently. Okay. So Kenneth wants to point out that Fission is an open source project for serverless from Platform 9. Uh, oh, you know what? I, I got to see what Fission, I remember them announcing that. I have to see what it's based on. Yeah, it may have been Kubernetes. I'm not going to say that for sure, but I remember seeing that in Tech Field Day. So if you remember, uh, we said there's a one-to-one -one relationship. You can easily see how containers, how you can build this using a, a Kubernetes for data center management, but using the some type of front end to get the. Then you just need the code management to you know to say take the code, run it in a container. He he confirmed as Kubernetes is the back end. Okay. He also says a cloud.guru runs entirely on Lambda, including all of the learning modules. Hmm. And Eric is trying to get me to set off my echo behind me. He says, why don't they just throw Alexa at Lambda? Then you can tell Siri to remind Alexa to push Lambda, a service telling a service to manage a service. There, there is uh, Alexa-based Lambda services. Alexa is one of the, I, I think, uh, I'm almost certain Alexa is one of the keys that you can you can actually create a completely Alexa app based completely on Lambda. And there's all kinds of beeping going on behind me every time you say that that name. <laughs> 
Right, is there any other questions real quick before we let Keith wrap her up? All right, Keith, I'll uh, say that the, there's no questions for now, so take her home. All right, so bottom line, reminder, there's servers and serverless. For the folks on this call, on this web webinar, more specifically, we're going to have hypervisors. We're going to have bare metal servers. We're going to deal, unless we're dealing with AWS directly, us, the operators, we're going to see the servers. The developers, the shift is, is that the developers no longer see servers. They only see code. The knobs that they get to turn is generally about memory. How much memory can I throw at this function? Processes that are events driven or batch in nature. So again, this is kind of when you need to go on this interview and, and you like, oh, I remember Keith gave a V Brown bag a couple of months ago and he said Cloud Foundry was serverless. The whole reason why I'm getting doing this V Brown bag is because me and Cody got into an argument about whether or not Cloud Foundry was serverless. And he said, oh, you just volunteered yourself for a V Brown bag. So there you go. So don't don't follow the Keith advice and go into an uh, uh, interview and argue why Cloud Foundry is serverless. Cloud and on-premises options. So we went through the various options and we got a couple of new ones. Fission uh, was one. I really appreciate that. I'm going to take a look at that again. And uh, we actually went through and looked at some code on pointed you guys to how you, if you if you're so geeky inclined and you want to do a, high, a basic hello world application, AWS lays that out for you. So just as an operator, you understand the vision that the developers have, the view that the developers have. So with that, we're going to close out. Any questions in general? Any closing questions? It looks like there's some salt about your uh, Cloud Foundry comment with uh, Kenneth saying it's definitely not serverless. Ah, uh, you better watch out. You might have to do another V Brown bag or another. Uh, no, I'm not going to volunteer it. myself for it. <laughs> Ken is always Ken is always argue with me that that that's just you know that's he's uh, for the past year and a half he's argued with me that it's not Cloud Foundry. But I have the mic and he can't talk on on it, so it's it's it is serverless. And we have definitively decided Cloud Foundry is serverless. So there's. No other vocal objections, so I think I think that'll wrap us up for tonight. If you're if you're okay with that, Keith, I am okay, and we can cut off and we can go into our questions if there's uh, our uh, un unrecorded questions because there usually is yes. unrecorded stuff. Yeah, so uh, that's a little teaser for anyone who's listening to the recording. If you show up live, you get some uh, stump the chump conversation. So please join us next time live and ask us all kinds of questions and uh keith i think it's been fantastic eric bachman says great job good info so uh thank you very much man you're welcome thanks for everyone for joining